saved. I know that many others, like myself, sing these words and rehearse in our minds and our hearts those many portraits of salvation in your word and even our own salvation where you called us from darkness into light, from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we rejoice to be called Christians, to be identified with the name of Christ, which in this world is a reproach, and it brings disdain. But this world is passing away, and this world is in darkness. In the world to come, that is the name in which we will glory even more. And everyone in the new heavens and the new earth will glory in that matchless name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the name of Jesus Christ and our Father by the power of the Spirit. Help us to live in daily anticipation of that day in faithfulness and courage and holiness of life, rejoicing in the one who has saved us from our sin. Help us now to listen to you as we open your word and hear you speak to us. Use it to produce your glory in our hearts and greater obedience in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 as we enter into a new chapter this morning. We will be looking at Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. And we're going to consider this morning a parable of Jesus, a parable of Jesus. And in this parable, he will help his disciples and us to serve him rightly in his kingdom. And he's going to help us to lay hold of the glorious realities of His grace and salvation. Now you'll remember that in chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus has just finished answering Peter's question regarding what they are going to receive, those who have followed Him in this present life, in the future age, in the kingdom. These disciples have, unlike the rich young ruler, left everything to follow Jesus. What's going to be in it for them? What will be the end of their decision? So the Lord answers them, and really all of the disciples, and He lays out before them an amazing promise. To those twelve, they're going to sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. To the rest, they will receive in back to them a hundredfold of whatever they gave up in this life and in the life to come, they'll receive even more, even eternal life, eternal fellowship with the Godhead, with the Father and with the Son. These are glorious promises. These are anchors to the souls of His people. These are the truths that we hang on to that enable us to live courageously and faithfully in this world. Now, after giving these promises, he ends in chapter 19, verse 30, with a somewhat enigmatic statement. He says this, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In other words, Jesus is teaching His disciples that the grace of salvation, the grace of eternal life, the hope and the future of the kingdom will be equally shared by all who are in the kingdom. 
And so he's going to give them and us a lesson on service and grace in the kingdom. Read with me the parable beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20 of Matthew down to verse 16. And then we'll consider it more closely. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Go back up to the beginning of chapter 20. And notice that he introduces this parable with a common phrase. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. It is obvious here then that Jesus is giving a parable to teach about the glory of God's grace and the right attitude of service in the kingdom. Now Jesus often taught in parables, many parables we've already looked at. And then when Jesus enters into this last week of his life in Jerusalem, he's going to teach in many more parables. Therefore, it's helpful here to have a brief reminder of the general nature of these parables of Jesus and how we are to understand them. And before doing that, I would recommend to you that Parker did his, or Pastor Reardon did his uh, preaching project, his dissertation on the kingdom parables, and I laid it out on the back table since nobody finds it in the library uh, in hopes that somebody will pick it up and look at it there and you can get more details. But let me remind you of just some basic points about the parables of Jesus. First of all, Jesus spoke in parables because they are engaging and they are memorable. They teach truth in a way that is remembered. They are designed, however, not only to teach truth, but sometimes to conceal it. However, here he's speaking to his disciples to reveal to them this glorious truth about the kingdom. Second, parables are meant generally to teach only one primary lesson. There's one main point of a parable. There are principles and other applications that can be drawn out of it, but it is designed to teach one main point. Not every detail of a parable is intended to have a parallel spiritual truth. That's not the point. 
Thirdly, parables draw from scenes common to the people, but contain an unexpected twist meant to shock those who are listening. And in that shock, the point is driven home. The main lesson is made more clear. And so it is with our parable this morning. Jesus has just given His disciples that unusual and proverbial statement about service in the kingdom, and now He's going to drive this point home with the parable of workers in the vineyard. So let's look down at the second part of verse 1 of chapter 20, and notice here a call to work. And we could call verses 21 through 7 a common scene, and we note the call and compensation of the workers. So he says at first, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The time of year here is harvest time for grapes, which usually takes place from July to September. This could likely be closer to September. These were, or they were largely an agrarian society, so their life and their livelihood was centered around harvest times and seasons when they went out into their fields and reaped everything that they had sown. So this was a common scene in the life of the people. The term landowner here is used exclusively in the Gospels. It can be translated master of the house as it is in the ESV in this uh, parable here. And it can be translated head of household as it is in Luke 12, 39. Here it's simply landowner for the obvious reason that he is the owner of this vineyard. Now it is suggested that about 10% of the population fit into that elite class who owned estates and actually hired other people to come in and to help harvest their fields. The other 90%... Some of the other 90%, some owned their own land, often land that was purchased by the rich landowner, and then they worked a small portion of it and gave a certain percentage to the landowner. These were known as tenant farmers. But a vast majority of people owned no land, and they simply hired themselves out to work in others' fields, and that's how they made their money. And this second class, then, is known as day laborers. Day laborers, and it means just exactly what it sounds like that they would hire themselves out each day to work in the fields of others. They were seasonal workers and they owned no land for themselves. And those are the ones we meet in our parable this morning. Notice they are available all day for work. As he says, even in verse 6, even to those in the last hour, he says, why are you standing around idle all day long. They are in the marketplace, which was a common place for these workers to gather in hopes that somebody would come along and hire them for the day. And so here is this landowner, and he goes out early in the morning to hire workers. Now again, this was a common scene. The day was broken up, according to Roman reckoning, into two 12-hour periods. The first of these periods was known as the workday, and the second is the evening. The workday would begin at 6 a.m. in the morning and then end at 6 p.m. at night. So therefore, as he goes out to call these various workers, you'll notice that he went early in the morning, which would be the beginning of the day, about 6 a.m. Later, he would go in the ninth hour, which would be about 9 a.m., or excuse me, the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., and then in the sixth and the ninth hour, which would be 12 p.m. and 3 p.m., and then finally in the eleventh hour, which would be about 5 p.m. Now notice here that some are standing idle. 
as he goes back each time and he finds these workers, he mentions that they were just standing around not doing any work at all. Now, some take that to mean that they were being lazy, but the text doesn't necessarily imply that. In fact, I don't think that it means that at all. He's simply saying that they were standing around because they had no work to do. As a matter of fact, he'll say in verse 7, when speaking to this last group, when asking them why they weren't hired, they simply said, because no one hired us. They were available to work, they were willing to work throughout the day, but no one had come along and hired them. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why they were not hired. Some have suggested it is because they were the least impressive workers. What some have said that just more generally then that they were the least desirable workers. And so for that reason, some have seen here then a picture of the prostitutes and the tax gatherers who were coming into the kingdom, who were considered the least of Jewish society and culture. And in fact, he'll make that equation in chapter 21 verse 31. But that's not necessarily the case here. And in either case, the point isn't why they weren't hired. The point that he's driving home is the fact that they were hired late in the day and could offer less time to work in the field or the vineyard of the landowner. That's the main point. So here are these workers. They've been called at different parts of the day to work in this landowner's vineyard. Now the fact that the landowner goes back five separate times on five separate occasions may indicate the amount of work that there was to do in the fields, but it may also demonstrate the character of the landowner. In other words, he went out to find those who had had no work for the day and as an act of kindness and as an act of generosity wanted to go out and offer work and pay to those who otherwise would have missed out. And he knows the necessity of each of these day laborers to have some income for the day in order for them to eat. And so he goes out and he looks for workers. So that's the call of the workers. Let's notice next their compensation. In verse 2 it says, When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard. Notice here first then he agreed with them for a precise sum. A denarius. A denarius was a small silver coin with the image of Caesar on it, mentioned in Matthew twenty-two nineteen, And it is widely understood to be the average prey or the average compensation for a day's worth of labor in that period of time in first century Palestine. It is a fair compensation and the workers gladly accepted it. Now someone, by looking at various valuations in the Mishnah, suggested that it would take about 200 denarii a year to survive, to put food on the table, just to put that into perspective. But notice here that he only mentions the amount to be paid to the first group who are being assigned work for the day. Just put that into your memory bank. That's going to be important to remember. So he agreed with them for a precise sum. Notice next, he agreed with others simply on a promise of equity. The next three groups... Those at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m., in other words, at the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, he offers no exact amount. But he simply promises them, look at verse 4, that when they go out into the vineyard, he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. Whatever is right, I will give to you. Now, it was common for workers to be paid on a scale. In other words... 
they would have expected these that came in later of the day for their pay to be graded in proportion to the amount of work that they supplied to this landowner. So that would mean then for some of those that came in later, they would have received or expected to receive only about 8 to 10 what is called an Assyrian. And an Assyrian is about a sixteenth of a denarius. So we're talking pennies, just a pittance. That would have hardly been enough to buy some bread, but it would have been better than nothing. Now notice here that instead of being given a precise compensation, they are pointed to the character of the landowner. They're pointed to his character. In other words, they must trust him. They must trust that he is just. They must trust that he is righteous. They must trust that he will give them what is rightfully theirs at the end of the day. And that isn't so uncommon because in a tight-knit culture like that, word would spread and landowners would be compelled to be faithful to their word so they would not get a bad reputation. But here is this landowner promising to give these workers what is right. Notice thirdly here, on the last one, this fifth group, they are simply made to suppose that he will be fair to them, much like the other three groups. Now this last group who came in the 11th hour, they're mentioned in verse 6. He has a bit of conversation with them, which we read about why they are standing idle so long in the marketplace and why they haven't been hired. And they said, as we've mentioned, that it is because nobody has hired them. So here he comes wanting to give them an opportunity of work. And he simply says to them at the end of verse 7, go into the vineyard too. In other words, he makes no promise of compensation to them. He gives them no amount. He doesn't even point them to his characters recorded for us. He simply tells them to go into the vineyard and these workers then are to suppose that he will give them what is fair. They were standing in the marketplace all day with no work and so we can imagine that they were glad to do this even though it was at the end of the day. They were probably assuming that something is better than nothing and therefore they were thankful for anything that they could get. And again, notice like the second group, they must simply assume that the landowner will give them whatever is fair. So this is a common scene. This is a common scene that would be understood by all. Notice secondly here an uncommon kindness. An uncommon kindness in the payment and presumption of the workers. Look at verses 8 through 9. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each received a denarius. When evening came, the day is now over, so it's somewhere around 6 p.m. The sun would be setting, if not already set. And this was the proper time then, To pay the workers. To pay the workers. And again, I would point you to notice the righteousness of this landowner. The righteousness of this landowner. He is acting in accordance with the law of God. Just listen. In Deuteronomy 24, for example, it says this. You shall not oppress, in verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin for you. 
Same thing is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. In other words, these laborers depended each day on what they received at the end in order to buy bread or any other necessities of life. Therefore, if they were not paid on that day, then they would go hungry, they would be left without shelter, and so on. Therefore, it was a matter of being righteous to make sure that these laborers were paid on time. There are some who did not pay on time, which received the condemnation of God. Let me give you just one example of that. In James chapter 5, uh, the, the writer of James here says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field. And here he's condemning the rich who treat them unjustly. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Some did withhold pay, some did treat them unjustly, but God was aware of them too. However, that's not the case of this landowner. He is righteous, he is just, he is fair, and he is being obedient to the law of God. Note secondly then, he also gave them or paid them in an intentional order. An intentional order. He said to his foreman there or his steward that he is to pay them, but he is to do something unusual, something that would have been slightly unexpected. He's to begin their payment with the last one, the last the workers who came in at the end of the day. Now, it would have been normal and even expected for them to pay the first ones, the workers who came in at the beginning of the day. Surely they would have been tired. They would have been the most worn out from the day. And it would have been an act of kindness to pay them and then to let them go home early. But that's not what the landowner does. He specifically, intentionally wants those who begin the day with him to see all of the other workers who came in later Paid first. He wants them to see that. That's a shocking element. But notice next, even more shocking is the amount they received. An unexpected amount. Following his orders, the steward begins to pay them, beginning with the last to the first. And those who came in at the eleventh hour, he notes, each one received a denarius. Now this is absolutely shocking. This is unexpected. This would have taken them by surprise. Now, he doesn't record the response of these laborers who came in at the end of the day, but we can imagine that they were overwhelmed, surprised, that they were thankful, and that they went away with a sense of blessing in their heart. Now, as this is going on, however, Jesus draws our attention to the attitude or to the thinking of these other servants, these ones who had been working all day. And so, in verse 10, he says... When those hired first came, they thought, here's what they were thinking, that they would receive more, that they would receive more, that they would receive more than these others who had come in later. In other words, in their mind, they're making this simple deduction that since they had worked more, they would receive more. And they thought this regardless of the previous amount agreed upon. This is really a tremendous assumption, a tremendous assumption for at least two reasons. One, it's rather obvious, they already agreed to work for one denarius. Nothing had changed that initial agreement. Secondly, because they have no idea what this landowner promised them. 
They have no idea whether he promised them less and gave them more or whether he promised them a denarius from the beginning. They're simply making an assumption. And they're not thinking in terms of the generosity of the landowner, but only in terms of their greater labor. And the fact is, they should have been discouraged from this kind of thinking as they watched all of the other laborers come in from anywhere from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. receive the same amount. But that apparently escaped their notice. They put themselves in a special class. They put themselves in a special class who was deserving of more. So when it's their turn to be paid, it says each of them also at the end of verse 10 received a denarius. Needless to say, they are not thankful, nor are they happy with what they've received. Note thirdly then, a too common complaint. An uncommon kindness, and now a too common complaint. Notice their grumbling and the generosity of the landowner. First, they're grumbling. They grumble that this perceived injustice. Look at verse 11. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. This grumbling speaks of a continual complaint, a continual expression of dissatisfaction with the landowner. There was a sense of injustice that they felt. There was a sense that they had been treated unfairly. They thought they had been wrong. They thought this landowner was out of bounds, that he was being unfair, that he was being unjust. And so they offer their complaint to him. And what is it that they're complaining about? He says in verse 12, this was it. They said, these men, last men, have worked only one hour. Again, notice the focus on those who came at the 11th hour. These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Again, the assumption here is we worked more, we deserve more. And yet you have not shown that By our pay, you have made us equal to them. You have not made us greater. They are accusing the landowner of injustice for not giving them a greater payment. Now, I want you to notice here that they did work longer, they did work harder, and they did suffer more. This was brutal work. The temperatures could be very hot during this season. And so their bodies were more worn out. Their muscles tired. Their fingers and hands were more scraped and bleeding. And yet, there's no difference in their pay. No difference. The greater labor, they thought, should have been recognized. Their greater suffering should have been rewarded. And now we're really getting to the point. Now we're really getting to the point. So how does this landowner respond? Look at verse 13 and notice generosity scorned by pride. But he answered them and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Now the fact that he singles out only one worker, maybe because he was grumbling the most or he represents the rest, he doesn't tell us and it's not an important detail of the parable. But I want you to notice here the gentle manner of the landowner to this ungrateful worker. He calls him friend. This is a common term of of friendly address. And this is in striking contrast to the attitude of the grumblers. The landowner is consistently modeling righteousness, faithfulness, patience, fairness, justice. And that is contrasted with the selfish grumbling of these workers. 
Notice also that they have been treated exactly as he promised. And that's what he says. Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Is that not what you said? Why are you upset? I gave you exactly what I said you would get paid. I have done you no wrong. And I want you to notice this. That the issue here isn't injustice on the side of the landowner, but greed on the side of the workers at his generosity. So he confronts them. He confronts them in verse 14. He says, take what is yours and go. But if I wish to give to this last man the same as you, is that not his right to do? Now he's not being dismissive here, but he's calling them to be content with their wages. He's calling them to take the fruit of their labors and be joyful, be thankful for what they have received. I want you to notice also here that he's emphasizing the freedom that he has to give from his resources. He's emphasizing his freedom. He says, if I wish to give to this last man the same as to you, doesn't he have the right? He says in verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And the point here is this. He's exercising his complete freedom. He's exercising the freedom that he has as the owner of the field. And what he's doing in his freedom is displaying his character, which is generous, which is gracious. Now, he asked these two penetrating questions, which would have been devastating to these grumblers. It would have been devastating to them. It would have utterly shamed them before both the landowner, his steward, and whoever else was present. They would would have been humiliated. He says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And here he's simply confronting their pride in failing to understand their position. They are claiming for themselves more than it was their right to complain. They are the workers. He is the landowner. They are asserting a right that they have not been given. They are claiming too much for themselves. Notice the second question. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And here he exposes the real issue, their selfish perspective. This term envious is actually a term that's generally translated evil or morally wicked. Here, the idea of envious is dominant, but they're not jealous over the other workers, but really it's that they're resentful towards the landowner. And that's exactly what the text says in verse 11. They grumbled at the landowner, not the other workers. They're looking at it from the perspective of their supposed rights. And they thought his generosity was, in fact, an offense to them. Now that said, Jesus ends the parable in verse 16 as he did his statement to the disciples back in 1930. He says, so the last shall be first and the first last. Now you'll notice he reverses the order here, which some take to mean that he's emphasizing the eschaton or the events of the last days. But that's not not necessary to read that into it. Now here's the question, what does he mean? What does he mean? What is the point of the parable? What is the point that he's making? Well, before we answer that, let's first consider some of the elements. The vineyard here is best understood as referring to Israel, God's people. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 would have been a passage dominant in the mind of these disciples in which Israel is clearly laid out as the vineyard of God. These laborers here are first the disciples, but really all who are called by Christ to serve among His people. 
Again, this would obviously and firstly include the disciples, but then that would be expanded to all who serve the Lord Jesus in proclaiming His name. In Matthew 28, 19, it's going to refer to all who go out, all who know Him to bear witness to His name. The landowner is clearly God. Some see the landowner as God and the steward as Jesus, and that may be, but clearly the landowner here is God who calls laborers to work in the fields. All right, that said, what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, some understand him to be referring to the great role reversal that will take place at the final judgment. In other words, they would understand him to be teaching that the value system of the world, and particularly the value system of unbelieving Israel, is wrong and it will be turned upside down on the last day. In that case, then, the rich young ruler who Israel and even these disciples would have viewed as having it all and having the blessing of God will be shown to be the one who is wrong, will be shown to be the one who is the loser, while the others will be shown to be the winners or first in the kingdom. Others see here the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees or the leaders of the nation of Israel. These saw themselves as the epitome of Israel. They saw themselves as the one who's labored most for God. And they say then that Jesus is teaching that in the end, they will be shown to be wrong. They will be shown to be wrong. That in fact, those who they thought of as the least in the kingdom, the outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, the irreligious, those who were flocking around the ministry of Jesus, they considered them to be the riffraff and outside of the kingdom of God. But others teach them that what Jesus is saying here is that they will in fact be the ones who enter the kingdom of God ahead of them. And this is in fact true. It is taught by Jesus in many other places, but I don't think that's the primary intent of Jesus in this particular parable. Notice that from chapter 28 of verse 19, throughout the remainder of the chapter, the point of Jesus is not about inclusion or exclusion into the kingdom, but it is about the attitude of the disciples. Now we'll look at this later, but notice that in chapter 20, or verse 20 of this same chapter, he's going to be dealing with that same ubiquitous attitude of positioning and jockeying for position that is found in the disciples throughout the ministry of Jesus. They're constantly jockeying for position, even in light of his coming sacrifice. He's addressing the attitude of these disciples. So what is the main point of the passage? The main point is this. This is his main point. That all who turn to Christ will equally share in the grace and salvation of the kingdom of heaven. No matter who or when they are saved. There is application here to the Jews. Because they were tempted as Israel to think of themselves as primary in the kingdom of God. And the Gentiles as being less and not deserving of the same honor. And so Jesus would be confronting that attitude here. And that attitude would spread over even into the early church. Paul would have to address that even in the book of Romans. And there is application here to the apostles. Who though they were the first to labor with Christ. Would have the temptation to think that they were deserving of more honor in the kingdom of God. But the main point here is simply that all receive the same grace of salvation and glory of the kingdom in Christ. That's the main point. Now let me note here before we apply this a bit more. 
that God often speaks of degrees of reward in the kingdom. There are degrees of reward in the kingdom based on faithfulness, based on sacrifice, based on motive. He's going to illustrate that in later parables, particularly in chapter 25 of Matthew. In 1 Corinthians 3, he'll talk about gold, silver, and other precious stones as compared to wood, hay, and stubble as God evaluates the work of each person each Christian in his kingdom. So he will deal with that, but that's not what he's saying here. He's making clear here and explaining the statement that he made in chapter or verse 29 of chapter 19 that all, all will inherit eternal life. All will inherit eternal life. Yes, there will be differences of reward, but the fact is that all who are in Christ will share equally in the blessing of the salvation of the kingdom. Listen to these words from Apostle Paul in chapter 3 of Colossians. He says this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. At other places, he will speak of the crown of believers. He'll speak of the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. He'll speak of the crown of life in James 1.12. He'll speak of the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. Each of these are the possession of every true believer in Christ that has eternal life, that will inherit the kingdom of glory, that has the righteousness of Christ accounted to them. That's true of every believer No matter who you're talking about, everyone who knows Christ will inherit eternal life, will live forever in a resurrected body, will live forever in fellowship with God, the Father and the Son on a new heaven and a new earth and with every other saint there. That's going to be true of everyone. And that's the point he's driving home. So let me note here then that Jesus is addressing two primary issues. One is attitude of service in the kingdom And secondly, is the goodness and the grace of God in salvation. The goodness and grace of God in salvation. Notice here he's addressing first then the motive for service in the kingdom. Now we noted last week that while Peter's question in verse 27 of chapter 19 is not a wrong question and it's not a wrong thing to desire. The fact is that it stemmed from a wrong understanding of the fullness of God's grace in Christ. They weren't there yet. They had not yet learned the lesson of service, proper lesson of service in the kingdom. They'd not yet learned the lesson of love that Paul mentions himself in 1 Corinthians 13. Whether you give your body to be burned, speak in the tongue of angels or of men, give your body to be burned, give away all your possessions. If you don't have love, it profits you nothing. That's a lesson that was still future for them. And though the disciples had followed Jesus, and though they were being drawn out and moved away from the apostate religion of Israel, of Judah, Judea at that time, the fact is they still had the baggage of their religion, their old religion, and they still thought in terms of merit. They still thought largely in terms of the earthly glory and personal glory of the kingdom. And again, that's what Jesus is going to have to deal with repeatedly. As a matter of fact, Luke 22, we won't turn there, informs us that all the way up to the night of the Last Supper, all the way up to the very night of the betrayal of Jesus, these disciples are going to be arguing about who is greatest in the kingdom. All the way up to that very night. 
Why? Because that was their view of it. They would need to be cleansed from that. They would need to be informed and instructed about the error, but that was going to come. And this was apparently an ongoing argument. The reality is that they are learning, and we must learn, is this. God does not deal with us on the basis of justice. Did you know that? God doesn't deal with us on the basis of justice, those who know Him, but He deals with us on the basis of grace. It's on the basis of grace. The justice of God, if we want that, would only condemn us. The justice of God was satisfied in Christ. We stand before God in Christ. When we all stand equally before God in Christ, covered by His resurrection, His death, and His life. We relate to God solely on the basis of grace. If you want to know if you have this attitude that Jesus is commending to us, Probably the best place to turn is Luke 17. Look at that just briefly with me. Turn over to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 7. Beginning in verse 7. 7 to 10. And as we mention this, I want you to ask yourself, is this my attitude of service? While we can walk through the parable and while we can easily condemn those disciples, there is a lesson here for us. There is a lesson here for us. I want you to think of what you've done maybe in your acts of service for the kingdom over the last week, over the last month, over the last year. And ask yourself in the silence of your heart, how do you view your service in relation to your relationship with God? Here is the proper way that we should view what we do. Look at verse 7. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. In other words, after all of their labor, after all of their work, after bearing the burden of the day in the field, after everything that we do to Christ, when we look at it in terms of our merit, we say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done in service of our great and mighty King and our God. Paul suffered tremendously, suffered more than we can even imagine. We have brethren that are suffering around the world even to this day to degrees that we can only imagine and I hope that you pray for them regularly they are a part of the body of Christ and they suffer and Paul suffered and yet when he looked to himself he did not see congratulations he simply said in Romans 7 18 he says I see that in my flesh there is no good thing that dwells I'm but a sinner who's saved by grace In Galatians 2.20, at the end of his life, or in the midst of his ministry to Christ, he says, all that he does, he does by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. This is the attitude of service in the kingdom. This is the attitude that Jesus is commending to his disciples and to us. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it is the love of Christ that is to control us. And so Jesus is confronting that attitude in the disciples and to us and to any of his people that would view service in terms of God owing something. He owes us 
nothing. He has given us grace. But note secondly here, he's addressing then the goodness and the greatness of God and salvation. And this is really precious and this is really at the heart of it all. The goodness and the greatness of God and salvation. There's no limit to the display of God's grace. Every sinner that is called to faith in Christ, every sinner who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is a portrait of grace. Every one of the people in this parable, those who were hired at 6 a.m., those who were hired at 9 a.m., those who were hired at noon, who were hired at 3, or who were hired at 5, are all pictures of the grace of God. They're living trophies of the glory of redemption. And the fact is that this reveals to us then the goodness of God in calling sinners to himself. Notice that all of these people were idle. All of the workers were idle because no one would hire them. They were there to receive work. And had this landowner not come and hired them, they would have stayed that way. And so it is with every sinner who's left to themselves. If God would have left us to ourselves as he left the angels, he doesn't give help to angels in Hebrews chapter 2, every sinner in this room, which is all of us, would have been left to our own sin to suffer the consequences of it. It is by the grace of God that He called us to repentance. It is by the grace of God, whether He called you as a child, whether He called you as a teenager, whether He called you in your 20s, or whether He calls you later in life, it is the grace of God that calls a sinner into fellowship with Himself. This is a picture then of God's compassion. However, while that's true... It is a particular mercy of God. It is a particular grace of God. It is a particular illustration of God's grace when He saves those who are in the last hours of their life here on earth. Their last days. Their last years. And this is really the focus of the entire parable. Notice that He repeatedly singles out the worker who was hired at the 11th hour. At the 11th hour. Here is the one that could do the least in the kingdom. Here is the one that had the least to offer Christ. Here is the one who had the least work that he could do for the master. And yet he received the same. That is a portrait of grace. It's a portrait of grace. It is a portrait of grace that's best illustrated in a passage that you're probably already thinking of. But let me go there in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is on the cross... He's being crucified for the sins of his people. And there on this cross, there are two other men with him. Two criminals, one crucified on either side. And Luke 23, 39 says this. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done no wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Here was a man who lived his whole life in rebellion to God. Here is a man who lived his whole life scorning the righteousness of God and the character of God. 
Here is a man who was within hours of standing before the judgment seat of God. And yet he receives the mercy of Christ. Though he knew very little about the kingdom, he knew very little about all of the message that Jesus had revealed during his earthly ministry, he knew enough to know that he was a sinner, and he knew enough to know that Jesus was the king who was returning with the kingdom, and he placed his faith there, and Jesus saved him. He saved him. He saved him in the very last hours of his life. And there is a tender encouragement here then for us all. There's an encouragement for those who, due to age, limitations of ability, limitation of opportunity, who feel that they are of no value in the kingdom, or who fear that they somehow may receive a less portion of the kingdom. There's the encouragement that God is sovereign, and no matter how much we can do in human eyes, it's about knowing Christ, and it's about serving Him with whatever time that He gives, and knowing that whatever we do for the kingdom, we will receive just reward from Him and receive eternal life. And there's encouragement here for those who have loved ones who don't know Christ, which is many of us in here. And there's encouragement for those who have loved ones in Christ who are in the last days, in the last years of their life. There's an encouragement that God's grace reaches down even into those moments. As long as there's breath within them, as long as they are alive and have not yet passed into the next life, there is hope. And Jesus gives us encouragement here. Some are saved in the 11th hour. Some are saved in the last and the waning moments of their life. And Jesus here gives encouragement in saying that none are beyond that reaching and extending grace of God, no matter where they are in this world. But there's also a warning here to us. And to all, that we would not presume upon God's grace. J.C. Ryle captured this well. Speaking of the two thieves on the cross, he reminds us of this. Few are ever saved on their deathbeds. One thief on the cross was saved that none should despair, but only one that none should presume. A false confidence in those words, the eleventh hour, has ruined thousands of souls. End quote. Yes, the grace of God extends to the last moment, but so can the rebellion of the sinner. And so there is both encouragement and there is warning. The encouragement is for those who feel the weight of their sin and who long to know the beauty and the grace of Christ. It's freely given. And no matter where you are in life and no matter what you can offer to Christ and no matter when someone is saved, each will sing the glories of Christ for salvation who truly turn to Him. And we'll sing, among other things, this wonderful chorus. The wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled by its transforming power, making him God's dear child, purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. And that's the point that he's making. The wonderful grace of God, the incredible goodness of God reaches the most wretched of sinners. Let's pray, and then we want to spend our last five minutes, and we're going to call Barton and Kathy up, who are saints who don't have to wait until the 11th hour, but have known Christ and served Him for many years. Let me pray for us, and then while I do that, maybe y'all could walk up to the front, and Parker will come up, and we'll pray for y'all. 
Father, we thank you for the incredible grace of Jesus. That none are beyond the reach of your mercy. None are beyond those promises that you give to sinners. That the one who trusts in you will know the rest and the grace of Christ. No forgiveness of sin. Cleansing. A righteousness that is not our own will be given to us. And for those of us who know you, has been given to us. And we rejoice in it. We pray that you will take these words and the encouragement intended by them and seal them to our hearts that we might find joy and comfort and new reasons to praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, y'all all walk down there. Well, as many of you know, Barton and Kathy have been with us. How long have y'all been here? Four years? Three years? Three or four years. Well, they've been here three or four years, and you've been in around Newtown and Danbury for 20 years. 20 years. Well, the Lord was gracious to bring them to us, and they've been a tremendous blessing to us in the church uh, in a variety of ways, not only their encouragement and their example, but also their service to us. I know Barton prays every morning before the service for you and for the Word of God, and that's been a tremendous uh, comfort to me, and I will miss that. Kathy has prayed for us faithfully and for the church and is always ready on the piano to play at a moment's notice. Uh, and she's not intimidated by flats and sharps and all those other things that are scary to the rest of us. Uh, and she does such a beautiful job to serve us. So the Lord has called them away, and we're going to miss them tremendously. And there's going to be a big hole in the heart of many here who are at Newtown Bible, and certainly a big loss in this local body of Christ, but we want to make sure that we pray for them uh, together right now as a body, and I hope that you'll stay and spend some time to say goodbye to them at the fellowship dinner, and that the rest will show up next Saturday to help load their truck at uh, whatever time we start. We'll send out an email. But let's pray for them. We want to lay our hands on them and commend them to uh, the grace of God. Father, we thank you for sending us such choice saints, such precious ones that you have redeemed by the blood of Christ. These who you have called into fellowship with yourself, whom you have shown yourself and revealed yourself to be their Father, Christ their Savior. And these who have walked faithfully with you and have demonstrated to all of us what it means to follow Christ even into the later years of life. At no time thinking that their service to you is over, but even to their very last days, showing that they want to honor the king and honor the one who purchased them with his own blood. We thank you for the ministry and the impact they've had on our hearts. And we know that though they physically won't be here, their presence is still with us. And the impact on our lives will continually be, make an impression on us that we hope will Make us more like Christ as they are like Christ. We ask you to send them off with much comfort of knowing they're loved here, but more importantly that they're loved by the Savior and that you go with them and they are never alone. We ask you that as you take them to a new place in this new town in Texas that you will bless them with a body of believers there who will surround them with their love, who will care for them, whom they can serve with the gifts and the abilities and the experiences that 
you have given to Barton and Kathy. We ask them you to use them mightily, provide for their every need. And Lord, we need take such comfort, though we don't always feel it in the moment, to know that for believers in Christ, for those who know you, there's never a true goodbye, a final goodbye. There's only a temporary parting. And we will be with them again, surrounded around your throne, singing your praises. We will have all eternity to express together our love for you and our love for one another. We pray that you encourage us with these thoughts and these truths. Thank you for them. May you bless them richly. And we pray all of these things in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bought us, who comforts us, and who will bring us safely home into your eternal kingdom. We pray in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. There's fellowship dinner, so we hope that all will come and join us there. Do you want to do a closing hymn? A closing hymn. David's going to do a closing hymn.